Welcome to another episode of the Voice of Wealth interviews. My name is Charlotte de Capoisson. Joining us today is Ed Shing, Global Chief Investment Officer at BNP Paribas Wealth Management. Hello and welcome, Ed. Well, lovely to speak to you again, Charlotte. Today, we're going to address the topic of consumption. So my first question to you, Ed, is in the wake of the coronavirus, do you think people have changed their patterns of consumption? Well, it's clearly inevitable, Charlotte, that uh, uh, patterns of consumption have changed because we've not been able to consume, we've not been able to go to the shops as normally as we would we, we would have done in the past because the shops, non-essential shops, have been closed quite a lot of the time. So you just haven't been able to go out. So inevitably, I think people have been forced online. People have been forced to consume how they can consume and that has been severely restricted. So clearly that has changed. But to my mind, that is simply an acceleration of an existing structural change that we already saw that had been in place for quite a while in not only the Western world, but even more more evident in China, which is that we see retail sales moving gradually away from sort of physical bricks and mortar stores, and of course, increasingly towards online retail. And that, that trend has simply accelerated over over i think um over 2020 and during the so during the various lockdowns in 2020 in most countries of the world as you said shops selling non-essential goods were closed for months on end whole swathes of the economy just stopped in your investment themes for 2021 you talk about pent-up demand so if people didn't spend during lockdowns um because they simply were not able to or rather they were spending less how can you be certain that they're going to spend again or spend more when the economy fully reopens? I mean, if I didn't go on holiday in April, Ed, then I can't have that time again. I can't go twice on holiday. That consumption is lost forever, isn't it? Well, that's an interesting question, um, Charlotte. I mean, is it really? Because the money that you didn't spend has been saved, right? So the question is, are you going to keep that money as what we would call precautionary saving, um, or when things improve, are you actually going to spend some of that money that you've saved up? Now, my guess is that you are going to spend some of that money that you've saved up and you might treat yourself. Now, that could be in the form of maybe slightly more luxurious holiday than you would normally take next time. It might be that you decide to take some mini breaks, some weekend uh, holidays as and when you can uh, in 2021 alongside a main holiday. Or it may be that you decide to spend the money in other ways for instance you might want a new car or you might want to upgrade your computers or you might even want to um, feather the, your, your own nest and maybe change some furniture in your house so there are there are many different ways i think that people can spend money and my suspicion is that yes once people can spend the money one they they will um and so i do expect to see um more consumer spending in 2021 than you would normally expect to be the case because we haven't been able to consume as we would normally want to have consumed in 2020. Okay, and you mentioned China, Ed, just, just earlier. Let's talk more about Asia in general. Is the same consumer trend emerging there too? Well, if anything, if anything, Charlotte, um, the trend has been more evident in China in a sense that you have this, obviously, the emergence of a, a swelling middle class who are ready to consume 
Um, and this is this is clearly a new uh, something that's emerged over the last decade or so. And this is still very much the case. You're still seeing growth in that middle class and in the middle class style of consumption in China. But what is interesting is, unlike in 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 the Western world, in China, a lot of this consumption, which is occurring for the first time, really, has gone directly online. It has not gone to bricks and mortar stores. There has not been any any sort of uh, intermediary. Uh, intermediate step. We've gone straight online. And of course, that has been, of course, encouraged by companies such as Tencent and Alibaba, who, of course, are the doyens of online retail in China. And a lot of people in employment or people with regular income, including the over 50s, saved money during the various lockdowns, as we mentioned, and now have disposable income to spend on goods and services as the economy reopens. But what about everybody else in precarious situations? Do you expect those people, or that category of people, to spend? And to what extent? No, I do think there has been um, somewhat of a divide um, from co coronavirus. And certainly those in, shall we say, more white-collar permanent jobs have certainly, in general, benefited um, and have a higher savings rate because they've been able to continue to be employed and collect their, collect their salary every month and have not been able to spend as much money as normal. So those savings rates of those people, particularly those in, in middle age, have gone up. But those in more precarious positions, which tend to be younger people who perhaps were in temporary employment, there that's been more tricky. And you have seen some emerging trends. For instance, um, kid children in their 20s and you know even early 30s moving back in with their parents, for instance in order to save money by not paying rent. So you have seen um, this, an increase in precarity in a certain segment of the population, particularly younger people. And I think it's unlikely that they're going to be spending more money. Although, having said that, now let's be honest, Charlotte, if they move back in with their parents and are not paying a full rent, then they may have more money. And this is a similar situation to what we've seen in the past, for instance, in countries such as Singapore, Hong Kong, or of course in Japan, where in general, uh, children live with their parents for longer in order to be able to save more money. But it also means that their patterns of consumption are different. And this is, for instance, one reason why luxury goods have done so well with the 20-somethings and 30-somethings in Japan, traditionally, because that money, which has not been spent on rent, has instead can be spent on conspicuous, conspicuous consumption. Yes, good point. And what about responsible consumption? What does that really mean? And do you see this as a growing trend? Absolutely, it's a growing trend. I mean, we see, for instance, the rise in the um, demand for secondhand clothing, for instance. Now, or rather, it's been rebranded vintage clothing, <laughs> but uh, it's still secondhand. It's been pre or pre-owned. I mean, it's wonderful that we can create all these new adjectives and labels. But ultimately, what are we talking about? We're talking about um, clothes that have been bought before, worn before, and are reused, and and that is a form of recycling of quality clothing that I think is is very welcome. Um, because again, we have to understand that um, up to now, this era of fast, so-called fast fashion, where people maybe buy a t-shirt in a company like Primark for three pounds or three euros, wear it once or twice, and then basically throw it away, are encouraging, uh, you know, uh, very unecological practices. Because again, even for a cotton t-shirt, it can take like thousands of litres of water to produce just one t-shirt. 
So it's very, it can be, it is an incredibly wasteful process. And so wherever we can, uh, for instance, reuse clothing or, 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 or give it a, give clothing or other goods a second life, I think that has to be good, not only for the, um, for the, for the, for the ecology, but actually also probably for consumers, because in many ways you get a better deal. Mm -hmm, totally. And we hear quite a lot about the sharing economy. So is this on the rise? And what's your personal experience of it, Ed? Well, it certainly is on the rise. Um, and I think it's quite interesting that um, if you look at business models such as Uber, for instance, now that is one feature of the sharing economy. Airbnb would be another one. These are classic icons of the sharing economy and both have been IPO'd and are now worth enormous amounts of money on the stock exchange. But what do they represent? I mean, Airbnb clearly provides a very a key alternative to, um, let's say, classic hotel rooms. Now, this can be very, very interesting because you may be able to find a type of either cheaper accommodation or different accommodation to that which would be traditionally offered by hotels. Um, and that is also a way for, for owners of property to be able to um, generate a better, a better usage out of their properties. For instance, if they're not living in it, they can rent it out via Airbnb so they can get some usage rather than leaving leaving a flat or an apartment empty. They can they can generate some money out of it. Or even if they're living in it, they can still generate money out of a spare room, which otherwise perhaps would be left empty. So what this is about, the sharing economy about, is very much is, is, is taking advantage of unused capacity to be able to generate money. The same is true with Uber, where obviously effectively you're, in quotes, borrowing people's cars in order to get a car ride instead of taking a classic taxi but again what does this mean it means that these cars are used more often i mean can you can you imagine charlotte that the average car lies unused at least 95 percent of the time it's just they're sitting there parked either at work or at home in the garage you know that's we're in using a car maximum five percent of the time we own it so that's pretty inefficient whereas with an uber Amazing. You could argue these cars are circulating all the time and getting much, much more usage and therefore is a much more efficient usage. And that, those, I think, are aspects of the sharing economy. People are understanding they don't need to always own physical goods. They can just rent them or borrow them, as it were, in quotes, borrow them mm -hmm. when necessary, as through Uber, Airbnb. You could also think of, for instance, about Spotify in music or Netflix or Amazon Prime in video. Again, instead of buying DVDs or buying CDs, we're simply, in quotes, renting that capacity by these subscription services. So I think the sharing economy is here to stay and it's it's clearly going to grow yet further. That's that's true. And nowadays people are often ex interested in, it, in having an experience rather than actually owning their own stuff. So, and particularly we think of um, millennials. How is the shopping experience changing? Well, I think this is a challenge for bricks and mortar stores because in order to stay relevant, versus on a purely online retailers um, they have to i think introduce more of an experience into their um, into the shopping experience in store because again you've got to draw people back and i think what's going to be difficult is 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 going to be attracting consumers back because now that they've gone online they say well it's actually much easier to go online and <laughs> and, uh, and frankly can i be bothered to go to the shop so i think from my point of view, the, 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 the experience part is, means that you need to give consumers a reason to come to the physically, physically to visit the shop. And I think that means not just offering goods, but maybe uh, allowing people to try things out, for instance, or offering demonstrations or 
again, other ways to, to attract um, consumers that involve more of the experience element, whether it being yeah, demonstrations, classes, teaching classes, for instance. Um, and I think, I think bricks and mortars retailers will have to be a little bit cleverer. I also think that um, they will also have to become omni-channel retailers. And what I mean by that is uh, even bricks and mortars retailers with physical stores will, figure, will have to figure out how to better utilize those stores. And one way they can is, for instance, by utilizing the so-called click and collect service, where you can order something online, but then drive to the shop to pick it up on the same day. Because that's one way that online that um, these bricks and mortars retailers can continue to compete effectively with the purely online retailers like Amazon or others because you can order it and then you can pick it up potentially an hour or two later just by going to the store and that can save you time but it also gives you instant fulfillment and I think there is a there is an element of um or, or, or there is an element of that sort of instant fulfillment by buying something and receiving it getting it the same day to be able to use it as yeah. opposed to ordering it online and maybe having to wait a few days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and my final question to you, Ed, is how can investors play this consumption theme? What are your recommendations? Well, there are very many ways to play this consumption theme, clearly via, generally via equities, um, so shares, Charlotte. And I think if, for instance, take one example, we look at the European retail sector, this listed sector today is higher than it was pre-COVID crisis in March 2020. So, in fact, that has already been a quite an impressive recovery in share prices for, for listed retailers in Europe. And that includes both supermarkets, so food retailing and non-food retailing um, companies such as clothing retailers. And they've done really quite well. And that's a mixture of online, for sure, uh, but also bricks and mortars retailers. So both are represented in, in this particular sector and, as a whole, have done well. Now... Even if there has there has been some constraint on consumption uh, up to now, we could argue that going forward with the vaccination programs in place, for instance, that consumption should uh, resume in a more classic fashion moving forwards, and that um, these bricks and mortars retailers should regain their market share and get back up to speed in terms of their sales outlooks in the like the sort of the twelve months ahead, and. Um, and we remain pretty optimistic that that will be the case and that they will also benefit, as I said, from this pent-up consumption. Now, the question is going to be over the more cyclic, the, the much more cyclical areas, such as um, the travel and leisure sector, which obviously has been extremely hard hit by the restrictions on travel. Now, the question is to what extent that recovers over the following year. And I think um, that sector has not, certainly not recovered to where it was pre-crisis uh, for very good reason, because um, because their sales have been really decimated by the inability to travel and obviously the setting of quarantines by various countries. Now, that's going to be a trickier issue. And from my personal viewpoint, I would prefer to play the retailing segment than travel and leisure, because I think the travel and leisure segment has a much more uncertain outlook in the, in the medium term. Yes, it should recover, but there may be some companies within that segment that never recover because simply they're, they, they, they're too weighed down by the debts they have um, and by their cost structures, which perhaps are too heavy. So it's it's more difficult, I think, to pick out winners there. Whereas in the retail segment, I can feel more confident that as a whole, the retail segment is going to, is going to see a recovery in sales in the next 12 months. Ed Shing, thank you very much for giving us your insights today. Goodbye. Thank you, Charlotte.